0: Here's God's word from Romans 2, 17-29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then... For circumcision is indeed, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Now let us pray. O Lord, your word is is a lamp unto our feet. And light into our path. Father, help us this morning that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that your Spirit would come and so work in our hearts that we would be transformed by your word this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In many cities, Within this world, all over the Middle East and the Southeast and more and more in in Northern Africa, um, five times a day, every single day, uh, the call goes out in these cities for Muslims to pray over the loudspeakers uh, from uh, the mosques throughout those cities. Uh, The first comes at sunrise. The next comes around noon, then uh, one at mid-afternoon, then one at uh, sunset, and finally the last call goes out about an hour later after nightfall. The calls last about 30 minutes, summoning all Muslims uh, either to the mosque or to get on their knees and pray towards Mecca, which is the central city for the Islam religion. I've had friends uh, who have lived much of their adult lives in uh, Pakistan and uh, Oman and so they have gotten used to this daily ritual but uh, they've said it does have an effect on you. Hearing it over and over again, seeing it happen over and over again, it really leaves an, an impression on just how religious and devoted these Muslims seem to be much more serious about their faith than most evangelical Christians seem to be. I've had other friends who have traveled to Israel and have seen all the sites around Jerusalem and one of the most moving for them was visiting the Western Wall, otherwise known as the Wailing Wall. It is the only structure that remains from what was known as Herod's Temple, the very temple that Jesus visited. Uh, Each day, devout Jews and uh, less devout tourists uh, spend hours at the wall praying, uh, writing down their prayers on little strips of paper and then sticking those strips of paper into the wall in a a symbolic practice of leaving their requests with God. Uh, Devout Jews believe God's presence still rests on that western wall My friends who've been there said it is quite moving to see these devout Jews just pouring out their prayers toward the wall, some even getting as close as they possibly can to the wall with their mouths almost touching it, hoping that they will be heard, that God will respond. And there are many other folks within the Roman Catholic Church who are also known as being devout with their religious practices. They never miss a Mass. They go to their church to light candles and pray, going through all the motions of of crossing themselves each time and kneeling on their kneeling benches, and they, they pray their rosaries, and they repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again. In each of these cases the people devoutly practicing these rituals all have the same purpose, the same desire. They are doing these things in order to please God, to, 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 to seek God to help them, and, and hopefully they're, help their families as well to be in a right relationship with God. They're doing all that they can in their own strength and putting their confidence in these outward things so that God will hopefully bless them. Although these religious practices can be moving to witness, God's word here in Romans tells us that no one can hope to please God or to make ourselves right with him by any religious ritual. It is only those whose hearts have been transformed by God the Holy Spirit who can truly be among the people that God redeems. The people that God will justify as righteous in his sight. In other words, it is impossible for us to make ourselves right with God. We are fully dependent upon him. So our main theme from this passage This morning from Romans 2 is that if we are ever to please God, we must have a heart transformed by his spirit. Forever to please God, forever to be made right with God, we we, we must have a heart transformed by his spirit. So here we are at the end of chapter 2 of Romans, and we're still in the middle of the Apostle Paul's argument for why everyone... Jew or Gentile is in great need of the righteousness of God, for we are not righteous in and of ourselves, and we cannot make ourselves righteous. Therefore, we are all in desperate need of the grace of God in order to deal with our sins and to impute to us his righteousness, which is an impossible righteousness because it is a righteousness that we cannot earn. So Paul is directly addressing his fellow Jews now in this argument, uh, and he's, he's pretty clear about that. And he's addressing the, the two main ways that his fellow Jews seek to make themselves right with God, or, or what they are putting their confidence in for their righteousness. That is, following the law and participation in the right of circumcision. So we're showing here that Jews cannot rely on these things and that we cannot rely on them either for a much deeper work is needed in us. We all need a heart transformation. So the passage clearly divides up into two sections here, verses 17 through 24, on the uselessness of relying on the law and then verses 25 through 29 on the uselessness of relying on circumcision. So first, 17 through 24 We are unable to live up to our own sense of spiritual superiority. We're unable to live up to our own sense of spiritual superiority. Now, as we look at this paragraph here, let's remind ourselves that in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 32, the Apostle Paul, uh, that is the human author of this letter, was focused on the sin and the unrighteousness of primarily Gentiles, at least the 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 sins that, that Gentiles were, were primarily uh, well-known for, that is, idolatry and the practice of sexual immorality, in particular, homosexual sin. He then addresses the, the, the moral rule follower who passes judgment on others at the beginning of chapter 2, which could include both Gentiles and, and Jews, but now in these verses he is turning his attention primarily toward the Jews, toward those who, as we have, have said before, those who have the Bible, those who have the law. The Apostle Paul, of course, was a Jew. As he described himself in Philippians chapter 3, he was circumcised on the eighth day, that is the eighth day after he was born, which was the tradition of all devout Jews. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so if anyone knew the Jews, knew their practices, knew what they were putting their hope in, it was the Apostle Paul. And he points out here one of the big problems for for many of his people who were still outside of the faith. They were proud, they were arrogant in their religion, their religious practices, they had a sense of spiritual superiority. We see this because Paul uses the word boast two times here in these verses in describing the Jews. They tended to boast in their superiority of keeping the law and simply knowing the law, being God's chosen people. They they thought of of themselves as teachers and of course others were then as children or they were the immature who needed to be taught these things. And Paul seems to be laying, laying... Laying it on here, kind of thick in verses 19 and 20, he says, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you should be sensing a bit of sarcasm there with what Paul is saying, describing his fellow Jews. He's trying to get their attention. Remember, he was once just like them. He thought of himself in this very way. And he's also realized the great problem that he had in believing himself to be this great guide to the blind, this this light to those in darkness because of his confidence in the law. The problem was, of course, that he wasn't doing a very good job of keeping the law himself. Remember, one of the main things the law says, you shall not murder. And Paul had been with those. He had been rooting for. He supported those who murdered Stephen by stoning him to death. It says Paul approved of his execution. So Paul was just pointing out here how the Jews weren't doing very well at practicing what they were preaching. Back to verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now sadly, it wouldn't take long for us to come up with a list of so-called Christian teachers and preachers who ended up being just as hypocritical. Uh, When I was just a few years into my position as a youth minister in a Reformed Church of America congregation in Des Moines, Iowa, I remember uh, meeting this this young, energetic pastor of a a church plant within the same denomination in one of the fastest growing suburbs um, of Des Moines. Uh, I was hearing such great things about him, how he's such a, a dynamic preacher. Um, our, our, our our organist's uh, son and his family were a part of that church plant, and they were excited about how things were going. And um, the church was growing so fast because everyone was coming to hear this guy preach. And then then one night I turned on our lo- local news broadcast, and, and there he was. He had been arrested for solicitation the night before and his name and his church's name were all over the news in the Des Moines area for all the wrong reasons so I thought of him uh, when I was thinking about verse 24 here for as it is written the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you because of your hypocrisy Because you're proclaiming to know the law, and yet you're not obeying the law. And of course, if we would take an honest look at ourselves, well, we're not much better. We've all taught our kids never to lie, never to speak a bad word about anyone else. If you don't have anything nice to say about someone, don't say anything at all. And how well have we followed our own teaching? We've all, in one way or another, taught the laws of God and have failed to keep them. We are all guilty of Paul's accusation of verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You see, sin has so deeply ingrained itself in our hearts, in our souls, that even when we genuinely believe that we are on the right track, Saying all the right things, we are still way further away from pleasing God than we could ever imagine. For we displace the primary place that God must fill in our hearts and in our lives with things that were never intended to be there. In fact, cannot withstand the pressure that we place on them. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 32, It was idols, created things, taking the place of God, the creator, in our hearts. Here in this passage, it is the law taking the place of God. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. The biggest problem here is that the Jews were relying on the law. They were resting on the law. This, th- this word has a sense of leaning all of your weight upon something for support. When it came to the coming judgment, the Jews were relying completely on knowing the law and the special relationship that they had with God. They are placing their hope upon, upon it, upon the law, to make them right with God. They are hoping that by keeping the commandments to the best of their abilities, that they would be made right with God. But God never intended that his law would make anyone right with him. It was not the purpose for the law. So what they're doing is just kind of a type of man-made salvation that's also taught by every other religion in our world. In the world uh, of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and even what seems to be our new national religion that is expressive individualism. Man-made salvation, relying on ourselves, following in these ways that, uh, that we look to in order to make ourselves right with God, in order to be, to be blessed by him. So this is not the way of salvation, for we will always fall short. We are simply unable to live up to our own sense of spiritual superiority, no matter what law we are trying to keep and follow. And yet there are still other false ways that we tend to rely upon to make ourselves right with God. And Paul addresses that next in verses 25 through 29, uh, in which we learn that we need inner spiritual transformation, not a reliance on outward religious ritual. So here we go uh, now looking at verses 25 through 29. We need inner spiritual transformation, not a reliance on outward religious ritual. Let's read that again. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So one way that we seek to be given immunity from judgment is if we rely upon our own ability to obey the law. Another way is relying upon outward religious rituals. For the Jews in Paul's day, that was relying upon circumcision. In these verses, Paul shows the folly of relying upon it. He says it is only of real value if the Jews also obeyed the rest of the law, faithfully and consistently, which they were unable to do. Circumcision was just another one of the laws that they were relying upon, but but for the Jews, it definitely had uh, uh, a far greater significance for them. It was an identity marker. It set them apart from the rest of the world. And they trusted in their belief that God would never condemn his circumcised people. Biblical historians have discovered that that at the time when Paul was writing uh, the book of Romans, Jewish rabbis had a couple of common sayings that they would uh, teach their students. Uh, These were drilled into the heads of of young Jewish boys, uh, and they went like this. Circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna or hell. Another one was circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. These verses were kind of like the John 316 for young Jewish boys. In one ancient Jewish document known as the the Mishnah Sanhedrin, it says this All circumcised Israelites have a share in the world to come. All of them will be in the kingdom, all circumcised Israelites. But Paul here is calling those ingrained beliefs that the Jews had of this outward religious ritual into serious doubt. Look at verse 28 again. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. So we're all prone to focusing on, on outward things, on outward rituals. We, we we gravitate towards these things that we can do that, that seem so meaningful, so so moving, things that we can point to and say, see, look at how devoted we are. We are doing these things. We're lighting candles. We're praying repetitious prayers. We're we're, we're going to special buildings and holy places. All these things that we can do for ourselves and in our own strength. And of course, the one primary Christian practice that has become just an outward religious ritual for so many that almost directly relates to circumcision is baptism. Jews circumcise their male infants on the eighth day, and a great majority of people who claim to be Christians baptize their infants as soon as they can after they're born. In my reading this week, I came across a quote from a 19th century theologian, Charles Hodge, uh, that really struck me as insightful and prophetic. Uh, Hodge was himself a Presbyterian and made a strong argument for infant baptism in his Systematic theology, but he was an even stronger proponent of the need for spiritual regeneration in order for anyone to be made right with God. So listen carefully to what he wrote over a hundred years ago. He said, whenever true religion declines, let's just pause there, is true religion declining? Whenever true religion declines, The disposition to lay undue stress on external rights is increased. The Jews, when they lost their spirituality, supposed that circumcision had the power to save them. Great is the virtue of circumcision, they cried. No circumcised person enters hell. The Christian church, when it lost its spirituality, taught that water in baptism washed away sin. Then he says, How large a part of nominal Christians rest all their hopes on the idea of the inherent efficacy of external rights. That is, what a massive amount of people call themselves Christians are putting their hope in this one thing water sprinkled on them or their children they their babies. That's it. A nominal Christian is a Christian that's one in name only, that says that they, that they identify as a Christian, they may go through the outward rituals, but they have no genuine faith in Christ that is molding and shaping their lives. And here in, in the Midwest, they are all around us. All around us. But lest we evangelicals get too proud of ourselves, we must realize that, well, we have our own external rites and rituals. Like coming forward, walking an aisle, raising our hands, tossing a pine cone into a fire at summer camp, or signing our names on a response card, and entrusting in or relying on those rituals to make ourselves right with God how many nominal Christians are out there in the world that point to that as their hope one of those things what we must get clear is that genuine Christianity like genuine Jewishness or truly belonging to God as one of his elect redeemed people is a matter of the heart rather than some outward ritual verse 29 again but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Now this was not something new that Paul was saying here. This had actually been what the Lord had revealed to Moses. It is what Moses taught. What was really necessary was not just going through the outward motions of the laws and rituals, but what was needed was a transformed heart, a circumcised heart. If you've read much in uh, Deuteronomy, you, you know the Lord is always calling for hearts to be transformed in that, uh, in that book. And if the Israelites were to truly be his people and enjoy all his blessings, the Lord said in Deuteronomy 6.4, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That is, inwardly, they must be this inward work. Then in Deuteronomy ten twelve, he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And then listen closely to what he says in verse 16 of chapter 10. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, I want you to think about what the Lord was calling for there. If you were an Israelite, listening to Moses preach this to you and your family as you were about to enter into the promised land, you had experienced the Lord saving you and your family from oppression and slavery in Egypt, you had witnessed the Lord do incredible things in the wilderness, including seeing his judgment upon your fathers for their sin and unbelief, and you are convinced... It is best for you to listen to the word of the Lord and trust in his word fully, meaning you you know that you must do what it says. You must obey it. And you hear this command from the Lord through his prophet Moses that you must obey. Circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart. Now, you know what it means to circumcise. You would have seen it done countless times. You'd have circumcised your own sons in your family. But now you hear, circumcise your heart. How am I going to do that? How could I obey that command? Well, there's only one conclusion you could come up with, if you really took seriously what the Lord's command to circumcise your heart was, and that is, it's impossible. It's impossible. It is impossible for me to do that on my own. And I listened again to what Paul says in the last verse of Romans 2. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The circumcision of your heart can only be done by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. Obeying the written law cannot accomplish it. You cannot accomplish it. It is something that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. That is, we are completely dependent upon God and His grace. If it's ever to happen for us. And in fact, that's exactly what he promised his people through his prophets, that he would change their hearts by his spirit. Towards the end of De- Deuteronomy, Moses calls people to repent whenever they experience the discipline of the Lord for their waywardness and their sin. The prophet shares this promise, and the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What a refreshing and wonderful promise you would have, you would have heard there as that Israelite, wondering to yourself, how in the world am I going to do this? How Am I, I going to obey this command? Oh, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so, so that You can love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and you may live. We find Jesus saying a similar thing in John 3, that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and the Spirit. That is, we must be given this new life by the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to love the Lord and to follow his ways. He calls it being born again. Something that is, of course, impossible for us to do in our own strength. No one can cause him or herself to be born. That is something only God can do. We are dependent upon him and his grace for such a transformation. So, my friend, is that something that's happened to you? Have you experienced this transformation? Have you experienced the new birth? Is your heart changed by a Spirit. Well, you will know by what you are relying on for your place with God. What you are leaning on to support you through God's judgment. What is your hope settled on? Yourself? What you are doing? What you have done? Some religious ritual that you went through in the past? Or are you relying fully upon God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your hope in Him, what He's done for you? If you're relying on Jesus and praise God, your heart has been circumcised by the Spirit and He will continue to shape and to mold you by His Word. But if not... If that's not who you are, then pray, 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 repent of your way of living and what you're hoping in, and confess your inability to change to the Lord and plead for the Holy Spirit to come and take up residence in your heart, in your heart. Seek Jesus. Seek Jesus and ask him to grant to you the new life, the new birth through his spirit.